The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 12, Duty to Protect. So my name is Tobias Wasser. I am a forensic psychiatrist. I am an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine uh, in both the Division of Psychiatry and the Law and the Division of Public Psychiatry. And I am also the chief medical officer of the Whiting Forensic Hospital, which is the state forensic psychiatric hospital in Connecticut. Dr. Wasser, thank you so much for joining us again to talk about duty to warn, duty to protect, the Tarasoft duties. There's a lot of names for this topic. People in mental health and uh, beyond mental health have heard about the Tarasoft case. Could you tell us a little bit about the details of the case and and what was the result of that case or what the ruling was. In 1969, uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, there was a young woman named Tatiana Tarasoff, uh, and that's what Tarasoff is named for. So Ms. Tarasoff was an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley. She began a friendly relationship with a gentleman named Prozenjit Podar who was an Indian graduate student, also at UC Berkeley. Uh, And they began in a relationship that started off friendly. And over time, Mr. Podar developed a romantic interest in Ms. Tarasoff. There was one night during which they actually shared a kiss. However, the significance of this romantic interaction was much greater to Mr. Podar than it was to Ms. Tarasoff. And when Mr. Podar expressed his romantic interest for Ms. Tarasoff and they were not returned, he became deeply depressed, very upset. And at the urging of others, he began seeking counseling at the uh, local university health center. Uh, He was in psychotherapy with a psychologist. And during the course of his psychotherapy with the psychologist, he disclosed that he was having violent thoughts about harming another person, a woman who he had had a romantic interest in. He did not name Ms. Tarasoff by name, um, but she would have been readily identifiable, you know, had the psychologist pursued trying to identify her. The psychologist he was seeing became very worried. He first tried to encourage Mr. Podar to seek voluntary psychiatric hospitalization. Uh, Mr. Podar was unwilling to do that. He then later called the campus police and asked them to do sort of a wellness or a safety check on Mr. Podar as he was concerned about uh, Mr. Podar's violent thoughts. The police did go and and meet with Mr. Podar, but ultimately felt that he was not an acute risk, uh, and they let him go. The head of the clinic was a psychiatrist. Upon learning of the breach of confidentiality by the psychologist, he actually became very angry and thought it was inappropriate and that there were, he never should have breached confidentiality. And he actually ordered the psychologist to uh, shred all the records documenting what his work had been with Mr. Podar. It's a little tangential, but it's relevant for, you know, sort of good clinical care. But in any case, after these events, Ms. Tarasov had been away for one summer studying abroad, but when she returned home or returned to school, Mr. Podar essentially stalked her and stabbed her to death. Subsequent to her death, the family of Ms. Tarasoff schooled the University of California region, uh, asserting that there was a duty to warn Ms. Tarasoff as the potential victim in the case, that the patient had voiced threats against her. Um, and initially, there were a series, there actually were two Supreme Court cases involved, but ultimately, the California Supreme Court in the Tarasoff 1 decision stated that 
psychiatrist, psychologist, or a mental health practitioner, if they become aware that their patient is a risk of harm to an identifiable third party, they first issued a, a ruling that said that the mental health practitioner does have a duty to warn the victim. Uh, and then later when there was a, an appeal and a second case, they later said that there was in fact, a duty for the mental health practitioner to protect the identifiable third party. So that's an interesting story and an interesting turn of events with regards to the ruling. You mentioned that it was heard twice in the California Supreme Court with a duty to warn outcome followed by and superseded by a duty to protect outcome. For people who don't understand the difference, could, could you just clarify for us how you see duty to warn differently from duty to protect? A duty to warn, in, in the initial ruling, uh, it initially, it essentially said that a mental health practitioner has a obligation, if you become aware that a patient you're seeing during the course of your treatment voices a credible threat against a third party, and you can identify with some minimal effort who that third party is, that you have a duty to warn them, that you literally have a duty to warn them or to warn the police that this person is, your patient is at risk of harming the other person. So a warning in and of itself, you know, doesn't necessarily protect the victim. It informs the victim, but it does not necessarily keep them safe. When the case was heard for a second time, the decision ultimately was that mental health practitioners actually have a duty to protect the identifiable third party. So it's not enough solely to warn them. And in fact, in some cases, warning them is not a particularly useful intervention, but that it is the obligation of the practitioner to attempt an intervention which protects the person. Because really the goal is safety. And so if the goal is safety, we want to encourage people to initiate an intervention that is likely to keep the identifiable third party safe. There might be other means that allow you to protect the person without having as much of a breach of confidentiality. A duty to warn and duty to protect may overlap a bit, but it sounds like they're, they're pretty different. If I lived in a jurisdiction that only had a duty to warn, it might be sufficient for me to just pick up the phone and call the third party and say, guess what? your life is in danger, and then I may have just discharged my duty. Correct. Without actually having done anything to, to not have done as much as one could to actually keep that person safe, and you've essentially maximally breached confidentiality. You know, that person knows, and there's nothing to stop them from telling others. You've done potentially the greatest harm to your patient by breaching your duty of confidentiality without having achieved the maximal good for the potential victim because they're in almost as much danger as they were before. Now they're just aware of the danger. Yeah, that does sound like a pretty terrible outcome. When you say that you don't have to breach confidentiality to fulfill a duty to protect, it sounds like uh, if someone takes action to maybe modify a patient's risk factors for violence, that might satisfy the duty to protect without actually calling a third party and informing them. Correct. So a duty to protect indicates that there actually are varying levels of interventions that you can enact, and each of those have greater degrees of breach of confidentiality and there is sort of greater strength of intervention. You know, and again, it all will relate back to the risk and the violence risk assessment that you're performing. And, you know, when I say violence risk assessment, I don't mean that you need some sort of structured instrument to be uh, implemented, but really just your assessment of that individual's risk based on, you know, are they stating violent or homicidal thoughts? Do they have any intent to act on those thoughts? Do they have a plan? Have they made steps to enact that plan? Do they have the means to act out that plan? And then, you know, what is the sort of credibility of 
the violent ideation, what is the foreseeability that they're really likely to act on it, and what is the imminence of that. So I think all of those things that we would think about in any sort of suicide risk assessment, you're also going to want to think about in a violence risk assessment that will then influence what decision you choose to make to sort of discharge your duty, as it were. So if you deem a person is at pretty low risk, you might consider increasing their antipsychotic medication if you think the risk is related to psychosis. Or if you think there's a slightly higher level of risk, you might also ask them to come and see you more frequently than they were before or identify if there are other safe people in their home or sort of paraprofessional staff who could be working with them more often. If you think they're at a very high degree of risk, you might consider hospitalization. And hospitalization, although in some ways it's more restrictive than a breach, because you're containing somebody, it's actually less significant breach of that person's confidentiality because while other healthcare providers will become aware of the person's violent ideation and their potential risk, those are individuals who are also bound to confidentiality. And so the, the degree of the breach is much smaller. And so you can uh, affect actually a much more effective intervention for protecting the patient, protecting the identifiable third party, for addressing the underlying risk while limiting the number of individuals who learn of the patient's protected health information. Dr. Wasser, you had mentioned that this case was heard in the California Supreme Court. Why would that be important? So although California does not have jurisdiction over other states and it was not a federal case, it set the standard. And so after this case, there were a number of other cases in other states where similar rulings were then found based on the Tarasoff case. And in other states where there were not necessarily cases, states developed law or statute that established similar obligations for mental health practitioners into law. So it sounds like the California Supreme Court opinion is important, but it's not a binding or controlling opinion in the other 49 states or at the federal level. Correct. Is there a federal duty to warn or duty to protect? There is not. So it really sounds like individual clinicians have to find out what the duty is in their jurisdiction. And different states are different, both in whether the duty has been set by case law or by statute. And also within the the expectations for the provider, there also are different kinds of sort of duties to third parties. Some states are what we call mandatory states, where others are permissive states. And that's also an important distinction for a provider to understand based on where they're working. Could you tell us more about the distinction between mandatory and permissive? Mandatory means that if a provider becomes aware of a foreseeable risk to an identifiable third party, they are mandated, they are obligated to breach confidentiality in order to protect the identifiable third party. So in those states, just like a mandatory reporting duty When you become aware of child abuse or neglect, you are obligated to do something about it when you learn about it. And the majority of states, about two-thirds of states, fall into that category. Permissive state is one in which a provider is permitted, is allowed, to breach confidentiality if you become aware of a risk to an identifiable third party, but you are not obligated to do so. However, in those states, act as if they're mandatory states, although legally they may only be permissive states. For example, I can say, so I work in Connecticut, and I trained in Connecticut, so there was a case law, there's no statute on the books, but there was a case where there was a lawsuit, and in the law, the Connecticut Supreme Court established that mental health providers are permitted to breach confidentiality if they become aware of such a risk. However, in practice, the standard of care in Connecticut is that if you learn about this, you breach confidentiality. Uh, and you, we act as if we're a mandatory state. And part of that is because in permissive states, 
even though you're not obligated to breach the patient's confidentiality, if something bad were to happen, if you chose not to breach the patient's confidentiality and they were ultimately to harm the identifiable third party, you are not legally protected. It puts you in a bit of a bind and, and sort of forces you from a risk management perspective to act as if it's mandatory because if something bad is to happen, you really have no protection for failing to act. I appreciate your pointing out the example of the state of Connecticut. One of the things I've learned about as, as I've read about this issue myself is that some of the variation between the states has to do with a couple of components of this duty. And one is foreseeability, and another one is whether the harm is considered imminent. Could you tell us a little bit about what they mean by foreseeability and imminent harm? Foreseeability often you know, relates to how easy was it to look into the future given the set of circumstances and predict that this could have happened. The expectation is not that any mental health practitioner is going to have a crystal ball and predict the future, but given the set of circumstances as you understood them, given the patient's clinical profile, given their relationship with the potential victim, given the risk, what was the likelihood that something bad could happen? And if it was relatively foreseeable that something bad could happen, then there is an expectation that a provider acts in some way. Imminence has to do with the time frame. How soon is this going to happen? So an imminent risk often refers to something, uh, you know, as it could be certainly minutes, hours, days, even weeks. Uh, anything more than a week or two, I think generally is not considered imminent. But again, that sort of varies state by state, locale by locale. Generally, imminence has to do with something that's likely to happen in the short-term future. So if someone was voicing a threat to harm someone and they plan to do it, you know, 10 years in the future, that would not be considered an imminent risk. I guess a third one that I've heard about, but I don't, I don't see so much uh, these days, is identifiability, if that's the right word, of a specific third party versus general risk to the public. Well, and, and that's a tough one that in most states have found that it is an identifiable specific third party victim, though in some states they have expanded to say that the general public is potentially a third party that also needs to be protected. And so, you know, again, that's why it's very important to understand what the law is in your local jurisdiction because it varies so much. The other element of it that, that's worth mentioning is the credibility of the threat. You know, that often is something that's baked into statute or case law is, you know, how realistic is the threat? So if someone is voicing a threat to harm the president of the United States, they have no access to that person. They live in Oregon uh, and they have, you know, their threat is that they're going to come up close to them and stab them in the back. You know, I think, again, it's not that it isn't possible. It isn't that you shouldn't take it seriously and think about it. But if they have no means, no ability to access the person, no way to find them, et cetera, it, it is a less credible threat than if they are someone who lives at home with their mother and they're saying, you know, I just can't stand my mother anymore. And yesterday on my way home from work, I purchased a gun. I'm hiding it under my pillow. I've been sitting in her room at night while she's sleeping. You know, that's a different level of credibility and, and concern um, based on the likelihood that person could actually act out that from looking at examples myself, it seems like most of the attention to duty to protect is placed on outpatients in mental health treatment 
and the role of the outpatient clinician. You mentioned some of the strategies or techniques that outpatient clinicians can use to decrease a person's uh, risk of harm to others and to discharge their duty to protect. But if you could go into those in a little bit more detail. I'll say you're right. So often we focus on outpatient because those are you know, the least controlled settings and with less control, there's greater risk and people become very worried. And I think essentially you know, your obligation as an outpatient clinician when somebody verbalizes a threat is to consider two things. The first is, does the patient pose a serious risk of violence to another person? And then if that's the case, the second is to think about what steps might I reasonably take to protect the victim. And after the threat's been made, as I alluded to earlier, you're going to want to complete a risk assessment. You're going to want to consider what other kinds of additional sources of information are available to you, sort of collateral informants, past records, past history as you know it that might inform your understanding of the risk. And then you're gonna want to think about how am I going to address this? How am I gonna document the steps I've taken and why I've taken them? And how am I gonna talk about this with the patient? When you're thinking about the risk, you're gonna wanna consider sort of their attitudes that support or facilitate violence. As I mentioned earlier, their capacity to actually carry out their violent thoughts, whether they've started to make planning steps in order to carry out the violence, their intent to do it, the responses of these collateral informants you might contact, and then the patient's willingness or non-willingness to comply with your recommendations for how to reduce the risk. And in specific response to your question, there are a number of options available to you. If you sense that the risk is relatively low, you might consider, as I said earlier, increasing medication, increasing the frequency of sessions, utilizing other support staff or paraprofessional staff to see the patient more often or to provide the patient additional support or working with family members who might be able to serve in a similar role. If the person is at greater risk, you might want to consider hospitalization. Generally, hospitalization, if you're really worried about somebody, is in my mind the ideal option. When you strive to hospitalize someone and you send them to the emergency room, there are elements of that that are out of your control because ultimately, unless you're working in the emergency room, you may not decide whether the person will be admitted or not, but at the very least, You want to send them to the emergency room. You want to communicate your concern to the mental health providers there to explain why you're concerned about the person and hope that you can convey the seriousness of the risk and also ask whether or not they choose to admit the person or not that they contact you back so you understand what was done with the individual so you can manage their risk upon discharge from the emergency room or the inpatient setting. And then I would say your final option and the last option I would consider would be whether or not to issue a warning, whether directly to the victim or more likely to the police. Again, I think warning the victim doesn't do much for the victim other than scare them and make them worried. Um, You know, I think calling the police would be a better option because at least they're an agency that is tasked with public protection and they might be able to do a safety check or a welfare check on somebody um, or keep an eye on them or assist with the issuing of a protective order or something of that nature. Again, I think it's hard to imagine scenarios when issuing a warning without attempting hospitalization is an ideal scenario. I mean, short of, unless, you know, if you were speaking to the patient and you were discussing hospitalization as a voluntary means, and perhaps the patient runs out of your office before you have a chance to involuntarily hospitalize them, that might be a circumstance when you would consider issuing a warning to the police and or the victim. But short of that, it's hard to imagine a scenario where that's the best option. I appreciate you bringing up involuntary commitment or civil commitment. Where does that fit in with regards to the duty to protect? If you have involuntarily hospitalized the person, and that, again, it differs state by state, whether 
how long the initial commitment is. And then if there's a, you know, for example, in Connecticut, we can initially hospitalize somebody for up to 15 days. And then after that 15 days, we have to petition the probate court for civil commitment, which can last up to a year. Any term of involuntary commitment, whether it's short-term or long-term, for the moment, during that duration of time, you have discharged your duty because you have protected the individual, you've mitigated the risk. I'd like for us to talk about uh, what happens in the inpatient setting in a moment, but uh, just to finish up with the outpatient setting, we've mainly been centering our discussion around the role of psychiatrists and their duty to protect third parties. Are there any differences in your understanding with other individuals who may be treating individuals with mental disorders uh, such as uh, psychologists uh, or other mental health clinicians? Do they also have duties? The duty generally is the same regardless of your profession. So again, it's, this is one of these scenarios where situations rather where it's important to check the local statute or case law to make sure if you're a psychologist, a social worker, a licensed professional counselor, perhaps even a primary care physician, whatever your background, if you have a therapist-patient or doctor-patient relationship with a patient, if you are providing them mental health treatment of any kind, then generally it is considered your obligation to protect the identifiable third party. And that kind of goes back to the original Tarasov case where the initial care was delivered by a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Correct. We talked about one potential outcome of duty to protect involving hospitalization. So if we could shift a little bit to talk about the role of inpatient clinicians, when an inpatient clinician identifies that they have an individual on their inpatient census who has real risk of harm to third parties, what duties do they have? It depends on the circumstances and the legal status under which the person is being treated and the closeness of that person to discharge, I guess, is the other point. So the, the obligation of the inpatient clinician really only arises if the inpatient clinician believes the person is ready for discharge. But ultimately, at the time of discharge is when you are creating a situation that might put the identifiable third party at risk. So at that point, it's when it's most important to do another risk assessment and determine how at risk you think that person is. If you think the third party is still at pretty significant risk, I think you need to consider whether the patient is really ready for discharge because it's hard to justify that a patient is safe for discharge but not so safe that you still think you need to issue a warning to their potential victim. If you feel like you need to issue a warning, then again, I, I think it's time to think about, is the patient really ready for discharge? Are there directions that the law is headed from your perspective or vantage point? Uh, what's happening with duty to protect across the United States? I think what's happening is, as we sort of alluded to at different times, that there are cases that are popping up in which the duty to warn or duty to protect is being applied in very specific circumstances. So there have been some states where there have been questions about if someone is unsafe to drive, do you have a duty to protect? Or if there, as you had asked a question earlier about sort of the general public, is there a duty to protect? There are these sorts of elements that have come up and it's, it's hard to address all of them, but I think the trend has generally been to expand the duty, not to limit the duty, uh, which is of course concerning. So Dr. Wasser, when you said that it's concerning that the duty is expanding, for those who, who aren't as familiar with the idea idea of expanding duties to third parties. Could you share with us uh, what your concerns are? Well, I think that as much as it is my hope that reasonable individuals would understand that 
mental health providers are not fortune tellers uh, and that all we can do is make reasonable assessments based on the facts available to us. My concern is the more and more you expand that duty, the more the role of mental health providers become more akin to public safety officers than to mental health practitioners. You know, also our patients are at greater risk um, of having their confidentiality breached. And oftentimes, you know, these are individuals who are seeking out care because they're concerned about their thoughts or because they've had difficulty controlling their emotions or their impulses. And the concern is that the more we breach confidentiality, the more it stigmatizes the mental health population and it increases the risk that people will be less likely to seek out care. And again, I think that's why whenever I, I speak, and I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to speak about this today, I really try to advocate against warnings because I think warnings are essentially the most indiscriminate breach of confidentiality that we can enact. And it's not in keeping with state law and HIPAA expectations about a minimum necessary standard, which I spoke about in the confidentiality um, podcast. You know, you want to release the minimal necessary information to accomplish the task at hand. And in this case of duty to third parties, the task at hand is to keep people safe. And I would always advocate that we release as little as possible and as necessary to make sure that we keep everyone safe while not humiliating our patients or stigmatizing them any further. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wasser. Thank you for having me.